Well, friends, I'm happy to announce that tomorrow I officially crest the hill of life and begin the downhill trek. Tomorrow I turn 40. And you know, you would think that after 40 years, certain weaknesses in my life would now be strengths. Take my forgetfulness, for instance. Uh, Friends, it's not so much that I forget events and appointments, although occasionally that happens. Uh, All the time, I forget stuff. I forget where I put things, like literally all the time. Or I forget that I have something in my hands, like really important, like a wallet or a a credit card or or keys. And And I chuck them in places that they are just not meant to go. So this week, our family went to a water park. And uh, we're, we're eating Whataburger on the way, at, on the way to the water park, Whataburger, and we're eating sandwiches. And, and when we get there, I do the responsible dad thing. I collect the wrappers and the French fry cartons and the, and the empty drinks, and I take them to the trash. And we walk into the water park. And we get there to the storage locker to rent a locker, and my wife goes, hey, can I see the credit card? And I reach in my pocket, and the credit card is gone. Now, friends, in that moment... I knew exactly where that credit card was. This is not my first rodeo. And sure enough, I go marching back out to the parking lot, dig through the trash where I put the empty Whataburger stuff, and there lie my credit card in the, in the garbage. Now you ask, John, was it humiliating to dig through the, tr- the parking lot trash can of the local water park? Well, yes, it was. Yes, it was, but I have my credit card to show for it. Our passage today, Psalm 106, is a song about God's faithful love despite the forgetfulness of God's people Israel under the Old Covenant. Friends, throughout their history, time and time again, Israel forgot the Lord. And it wasn't just an absent-minded type of forgetfulness either. Their forgetfulness was, was willful. It was tantamount to ignoring God, to not trusting Him. It was a forgetfulness that spawned false worship and elicited God's judgment. You know, as we look at this, this song in the scripture this morning, I imagine that you will see a lot of yourself in Israel. Surely all of us have forgotten our God and pursued our own way, probably more than we'd like to admit. Maybe this morning, even as you sit here, you are in danger of forgetting the Lord. You've neglected to remember the depth of mercy that God has shown you in Christ Jesus, and your heart has started to chase after the allure of sin. Friends, I pray that the Lord might use Psalm 106 among us this morning as kind of spiritual smelling salts, that it would awaken in us a horror at the devastation that sin brings, but even more than that, that it would awaken our soul a deeper love for our God, whose love simply will not let us go if we are in Christ. His steadfast love endures forever. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 106. It's on page 505 of the Bible underneath your chair. If you need a Bible, please avail yourself of that one. Friends, if you're just joining us for the first time this morning, we are in Sermon 6 of an eight-part series in the Psalms, these Songs of the King. And and remember, we're looking at, at Psalms that kind of highlight the intentional arrangement of the Psalter by its final editor, an arrangement that actually seems to have a purpose. If you remember, I went through this in in, in sermon number one at the beginning of the series. Essentially, the Psalms have have a prologue, Psalms 1 and 2, and a grand finale, Psalms 146 to 150. And in between, the Psalter is arranged into five books or five sections. And so in this sermon series, I'm preaching the intro and conclusion of the Psalms, as well as the last Psalm in each of those five books. Uh, Like photos in a collage, the individual psalms and their layout in the Psalter impress upon us a developing story. It's the story of Israel's hope of a coming Messiah King that God promised would sit on David's throne forever and bring salvation to the world. Last week, we studied the last psalm in book three, Psalm 89, where if you remember, the psalmist in anguish cries out, how long, O Lord, how long till you remember your promises? The crown was in the dust. The throne was empty. Well, now in Psalm 106, the last psalm in in book four, it reflects on the same place in Israel's history, it seems like. God's people are scattered among the nations. And it seems to point to this, this time of exile in Babylon. But 
In Psalm 106, rather than calling upon God to remember Israel, this psalm confesses the fact that so often Israel has failed to remember God. They have forgotten Him in their idolatry and unbelief. Now, a few quick notes before we dig in. We don't know who wrote it. Okay, you'll, you'll not find a title or superscription above the psalm. There's no clear indication of authorship. Verses 47 and 48 of Psalm 106 do appear in another place in the Bible. First Chronicles 16 and in David's song of thanks when the Ark of the Covenant was, was brought to Jerusalem. So it's possible that David wrote Psalm 106 or perhaps more likely that a, another author around the time of the exile utilized that portion of David's song when penning this psalm. Let me give you what I think is like a 40,000-foot flyby of Psalm 106, okay? The easiest way to see Psalm 106 is to see that it is bookended by both a call to praise and a plea for deliverance. In fact, the psalm begins and ends with the same word. Praise the Lord. Literally one word in the Hebrew. Hallelujah, right? And in both the introduction and conclusion, the psalmist prays for God to deliver his people so that they might worship him and give him thanks. The rest of the psalm in between the, that bookend, verses 6 to 46, recounts God's faithfulness despite Israel's unfaithfulness. The psalmist recounts dismal episode after dismal episode, right? Pathetic vignette after pathetic vignette of Israel's rebellion, eight episodes in all. It's like the, the psalmist paints the bright colors of God's faithfulness and steadfast love against this dark, pitch black backdrop of Israel's sin, their persistent idolatry. Through all their sordid history, God was staggeringly merciful and faithful. When we get to verse 47, I think we'll see why the psalmist wrote the psalm the way that he did. His recounting of God's past mercy to Israel is like a launching pad to a prayer and hope for future mercy from the Lord. God will once again prove himself faithful, delivering his people from their exile, restoring them to the land. Okay, here's the main idea. We're going to read the text in sections like we did with the long psalm last week. Here's the main idea even before we get going. I hope it'll be the main idea of the sermon. Praise the Lord. God's history of delivering his people despite their many sins assures us of a future deliverance yet to come. Friends, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. God's history of repeatedly delivering his people despite their many sins assures us of a future deliverance yet to come. Three points this morning kind of outlining the way this psalm is kind of macro structured. Number one, the worthy God. Verses one to five. Number two, the merciful God. Verses six to 46. Number three, the saving God. Verses 47 to 48. Friends, I pray that the Lord might use his word this morning in our midst to convict us and encourage us about his faithful love. Let's look at these first five verses. In fact, let's read them together that describe this worthy God. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that, I'm, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Psalm 106 begins with a summons, doesn't it? With an invitation that kind of lays out what our primary response to this psalm is to be. We are to praise the Lord. Specifically, the, the psalmist calls us to give thanks to the Lord for two specific reasons. You see them there? For, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Friends, it's not just that our God does good and beneficial things some of the time. Rather, goodness describes his essence. He cannot be anything but good. There's, there's no hint of evil in him. Only a pure goodness that results in actions that are always good and right and beneficial. Friends, no wonder God's steadfast love, this love of his covenant endures forever. He's good. He cannot be anything else. Verse 2 
issues the summons to praise God in the form of a rhetorical question. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? It's really the same call to praise God, but kind of with a, a heightened pitch, right? Our, our former church in Louisville would sing a, a, an old hymn, O God beyond our praising, we worship you today. And sing the love amazing that songs cannot repay. That's the idea here in verse 2. Despite the invitation to praise and thank our God, we realize that we really can never do so adequately in such a way to fully match his greatness. So spectacular and majestic and awesome is our God that his mighty deeds are beyond our praising. You know, so we're not to gather on the Lord's day and kind of leave our service thinking, you know, man, I bet bet God got blessed by us today, right? No, rather we come with humility. We come with a sense of inadequacy. This juxtaposition of the summons to praise God on one hand and the fact that we can never do it adequately on the other implies that we need humility and that our worship is not a casual thing. The infinite worthiness of God should should expand the aim of our heart and life. He is worthy, friends, of everything that you can give Him and far more. Look briefly at verse 3. The point may seem confusing at first. Why stick a beatitude about those who observe justice and always do righteousness right here? Well, I, I think the psalmist seems to say that this call to praise God and be thankful, it's not at odds with our happiness. In fact, it's the only path to happiness. Blessed, happy, flourishing, satisfied is the one who do these things, who live according to God's standard of righteousness. I think what verse 3 does is help us make sense of why Israel's waywardness that we're going to look at here in a second brought them so much pain. Friends, when they rebelled, they cut against the grain of the way that God had designed the world and designed life under His covenant with His people. God created us to worship Him and enjoy Him forever, to find in Him the deepest longings and satisfaction of our soul satisfied. Friends, we've seen this over and over again in the Psalms as we've studied together. This is the Psalm 1 life, the life in right relationship to God's word and ultimately with the king that he has installed on the throne, our Lord Jesus. Friends, you want to live your best life both now and forever? I'm not talking about a best life free of difficulty or suffering. I'm not talking about a life of ease and comfort. No, I'm talking about a life that maximizes your joy. The deeply rooted, authentic God-given life that springs up in the good times and in the bad. You want to live that type of life? Give yourself to the glad worship of God and live according to His Word. The world will tell you that pleasures abound apart from Him, that happiness is found in yourself and in the true expression of whoever you conceive yourself to be. Well, the Psalms repeatedly show us what a lie that is. It's a lie as old as Eden. You'll not find true life, the blessed life within yourself or in anything else that God has created. You'll only find that blessed life in him, our creator, the source and sustainer of all things. The psalmist continues that theme, I think, in verses five to six. These verses form a personal prayer. When God keeps his promises, when he shows his favor to his people, when he brings his people out of exile, the psalmist wants to be included among their number. It's not a selfish prayer. It's a faith-filled prayer. He wants to experience, his, uh, experience God's promises fulfilled, as should we all. Brothers and sisters, this is the life to which God has called us. To orient our entire existence as a glad response to God's goodness and steadfast love. You know what verses 1 to 5 should do? Verses 1 to 5 of Psalm 106 should course through our spiritual veins. When we read these verses, the hearts of the redeemed should rise up and say, yes, yes, let my life reflect that. This is the God worthy of my highest aim and the praise of my life. I'm going to lay down my selfish ambitions. I'm going to lay down my self-focused goals, and I'm going to abandon myself to this God who is so worthy of my worship and so ready to fill me with joy. The worthy God. Number two, the merciful God. Let's read verse Six. Both we and our fathers have sinned. 
We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. So let me just stop there for a moment because in verse 6, the psalmist models the right response to God's hand of discipline. He confesses their sin, right? He doesn't sugar, sugarcoat it. In fact, he identifies Israel's sin with the sins of previous generations in Israel's history. Both we and our fathers have sinned. Friends, this is not merely an admission of wrong. It's a confession that God was right to judge them. He had kept his end of the deal, but they had not. And so now, in the next 39 verses, the psalmist is going to highlight God's faithfulness by recounting the lowlights in Israel's history. As we go throughout these, I think you'll see in these eight episodes that, that the psalmist does not recount them in, in chronological order. It's not a linear progression from Egypt to Canaan. And so that begs the question, is there a rhyme or reason to this section? Is there a rhyme or reason to this, this entire psalm? Well, I think there is, and I've, I've suggested uh, a structure for this psalm in, in the notes section of your worship guide. Uh, perhaps the reason that the psalmist writes these events out of order is that he's presenting these events kind of artistically with sections that parallel each other and draw out a center, draw out a center focus in the idolatry and unbelief of God's people. Let's keep reading. Verse 7, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. Friends, Israel's first case of spiritual amnesia is shocking. In an unparalleled display of his power, God had just delivered them from their 400-year slavery in Egypt. He weaponized his own creation, right, to judge Egypt and humiliate their gods. The wondrous works of verse 7 clearly refer to the ten plagues, which climaxed in the death of the firstborn children of Egypt, when God mercifully passed over the homes of Israel where the blood of the, of the sacrificial lamb was smeared on the doorpost. In short, friends, God remembered. He remembered His promise to Abraham, made centuries before, that His offspring would dwell in the land. He remembered His promise to Jacob that his, his children would one day return to Canaan, so don't be afraid to go down there, Jacob. After the tenth plague, God let, judged Pharaoh, and Pharaoh let God's people go. But shortly thereafter, Pharaoh's heart hardened, and he went after them, right? He pursued the children of Israel until he backed them up to the Red Sea. They had nowhere to hide. You'll find this in Exodus 14. Exodus 14, 11, and 12 say that when Pharaoh drew near with his armies, the, the people of Israel feared greatly, and they blamed Moses, and therefore they blamed God. They said it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Friends, you know, apparently seeing firsthand God's mighty acts is not enough. You must embrace by faith the God of those mighty acts. Israel was released from their bondage to Egypt, but their slavery to sin so clearly still shackled their hearts. They feared the king of Egypt who pursued them while forgetting the sovereign king who had just delivered them, whose presence led them even then by pillar of fire and cloud to the water's edge. Well, friend, no wonder verse 7 describes Israel's posture as rebellion. It was high-handed disregard for their Redeemer which makes God's next mighty act of salvation even more stunning because God acted despite their rebellion. He parted the Red Sea not because Israel was good or worthy. In fact, we're, giving, we're given no indication that Israel repented of their rebellion there before the Red Sea. He saved them, according to verse 8, for His namesake, that He might make known His mighty power. In other words, friends, what grounds God's mercy is God's love for himself. God-centeredness grounds his mercy. He shows mercy to sinners compelled by nothing but his own sovereign freedom and goodness. 
Friends, God had sworn an oath to Abraham, right? He had linked himself in covenant love to Abraham's offspring, and he would be a faithful covenant keeper, even when Abraham's offspring were not. What the Lord had his eyes on at the Red Sea was his own fame and worldwide reputation for the sake of his name, which he has graciously tied in love to his people, like you, like me, like, like Israel at the Red Sea. God acted for the sake of his name. Verse 9 says that he rebuked the sea as if the sea was kind of like evil or, or chaos personified, right? He led his people through the deep as through a desert. I love that given where we live, by the way. I get that. You get that. And then after the last people had safely passed, God hurled the, chaotic, the chaotic waters back down so that the evil of Pharaoh came crushing down on his head. The waters covered their adversaries. Verse 11 says not one of them was left. Friends, let's keep this in mind as we walk through these episodes. Let's keep this in mind. God does not deliver or forgive based on anything intrinsic in the delivered or the forgiven. He doesn't. He demonstrates his mercy freely. He loves us simply because he's chosen to. The ground of our assurance of salvation, friends, isn't in us. It's not in you. It's in God's free and sovereign mercy that he's shown us in Christ. If you're united to Christ Jesus by faith, this afternoon, just, just read through Ephesians 1, where, where Paul makes it so crystal clear that from start to finish, from eternity past to eternity future, salvation is of the Lord, and it's for the praise of His glorious grace, so that He might be worshipped and praised. Well, next, the psalmist recounts two events in which Israel sinfully craved in the desert. The desires of their hearts were disoriented and warped. I think in, in verses 13 to 15, the psalmist recounts their, their discontentment and craving after a certain kind of food. And in verses 16 to 17, we see their jealous craving after power. Let's, let's look at this first craving in verse 13 to 15. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton, wanton craving in the wilderness, and, and they put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked but sent a wasting disease among them. Friends, I think what this describes is two separate events, one in Exodus 16 and another in Numbers 11, in which both times the children of Israel craved after food that they did not have. Verse 13 says, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. That's an understatement, okay? So three days after the exodus in which God literally rolled back the waters and made a highway for his people through the deep to the promised land, the children of Israel grumbled about bitter water. The Lord intervened and he miraculously sweetened the water. And then just days later, once again, they complained about their lack of food. And they even had the audacity to pine after what they ate in Egypt, and so God mercifully answered their grumbling by giving them manna, bread from heaven, that fell with the dew each morning. Friends, Israel's cravings were like a broken record that just played over and over and over again. In Numbers 11, the people had grown tired of the manna, and they complained that they had no meat. They once again compared the lack of protein that they had you know, with what they had in Egypt, right? And so what does God do? He graciously answers them again, and he just dumps a heap load of quail right? Air express meat all around the camp. They had more quail than they knew what to do with. And then God judged them. He became rightly angry because of their discontent. And the Lord, according to Numbers 11.33, struck them down with a very great plague. The people craved what they did not have. And the psalm says that they put God to the test. They put God on trial, as it were, for his quote-unquote failure to provide. Psalm 106.15 sums it up so well. He gave them what they asked, but, they sent, but sent a wasting disease among them. I actually like the old KJV's translation of that a little better. I think it's a little bit more accurate. He gave them their request, but he sent leanness into their soul. Oh, the irony, friend, of filling up your belly, but leaning out your soul. You know, you know what has a, a remarkable way of evaporating discontent craving in your heart? 
thankfulness. Thankfulness to God, the very thing that this psalm calls us to do. Instead of spending our energy pining after the things we don't have, we ought to spend all of our energies thanking God for what he's given us, both temporally and eternally. Oh, sure, friend, you may have an unmet desire. You can pray that the Lord might fulfill that desire, but as long as he doesn't, as long as the waiting game lasts, oh, friend, wait joyfully and rest in God's goodness. He is your satisfaction and delight. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 32, if God has not withheld his own son from us, he'll surely not withhold anything that we need for, all, for our eternal joy in him. Our God will provide. We're going to keep reading in a moment, but let me just point out that even though the psalmist doesn't here wrap up, you know, this episode or every single episode with something like, and then the Lord was merciful, that's what we're supposed to see, right? After every one of these episodes, we're supposed to see and they lived, <laughs> and they went on. The Lord was merciful, right? For instance, in this episode, God's plague that he sent, that was his expression of his right and good wrath, he relented of it. He did not totally wipe them out. It was an act of mercy. He always relented, which is, of course, why the psalmist has hope that he'll do it yet again, even during the exile. Let's read uh, verses 16 to 18. When he summoned a famine on the land, excuse me, yeah, this is Psalm 105. Let's go to Psalm 106. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. Friends, in short, these verses describe the time when Korah and 250 of his accomplices rebelled against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. They were jealous of their authority. It's recounted by number 16. They tried to usurp Moses and Aaron's leadership, and God judged them severely. He sent a plague throughout the camp. He killed 14,000 people before Aaron intervened to make atonement for their sin. And of course, the, the earth opened up and swallowed the sons of Korah. Again, Israel sinned grievously and high-handedly, but still God was faithful. The next incident is probably the best known, and I think it shows us that the fundamental root sin of Israel was their idolatry. Let's read verses 19 to 23. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Friends, these verses uh, summarize Exodus 32. Moses had been on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb receiving the law of God. And while he was up there, remember, the people grew restless and impatient. They approached Aaron and they asked for a God, quote unquote, to lead them out of the desert to a better land. They melted down their gold and jewelry, the very things that they had plundered from the Egyptians in their deliverance, and they fashioned them into a calf before which the people then began to worship. Friend, again, you can see the drumbeat of spiritual amnesia pounds through this story. Look at verse 21. They forgot. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham. Friends, the obvious implication is this. If you forget God... Your idol-making heart will no doubt erect something in his, in his place. If you forget him, your heart, which is just this factory of idols, as Calvin says, it will erect something in God's place. Look at the indictment of verse 20. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. You can see the footnote if you're reading the ESV. I think it has the accurate translation. They exchanged their glory for an image of an ox that eats grass. In other words, friends, God's glory is his people's glory. God redeemed Israel for the same purpose that he created Adam for. They were to image the glory of his character. God's glory that just sparkles, right, in his steadfast love, in his justice, in his righteousness. That is the glory of his worshiping people. They were to image him, to reflect his holy character with their holy lives. But instead, they made a pitiful exchange. Sin makes us so stupid, doesn't it? Idolatry warps our thinking. 
the Israelites exchanged the glory of the creator of heaven and earth for the figure of a cow. They became like the one they worship. And so will we. They became debased and futile in their thinking. Friends, this is what C.S. Lewis talked about when he said that forsaking God for idols is like exchanging a holiday at the sea for the sitting in a sandbox and the making of mud pies. It is silly. It's insane. Paul in Romans 1 picks up this idea from Psalm 106.20 and says that humanity apart from God has done that that, that stupid exchange, exchanging the glory of God for His creatures. We, we worship and serve the things He has made as if they're worthy of bearing the weight of our worship. Here's the thing. Worship, friends, is the DNA of humanity. It's the DNA of humanity because we were created to do that. God created us to be worshipers. The sad reality is that, is that although sin mars God's image in us, we keep worshiping. But instead, we worship the wrong thing. We image the wrong thing. This, this story reminds us of how much humanity needs to be rescued from our, our idolatry and, and restored to the joy of worshiping the Lord. Well, after Moses came down from Sinai, God told them that he was going to destroy the people. and He was going to make a new start with Moses. But Moses interceded for them. He offered himself in their place, and so God spared the children of Israel once again. He relented from his wrath because according to verse 23, his chosen one stood in the breach and interceded on their behalf. Hold that thought. We'll come back to it in a few moments. Okay, we're going to move quickly now. Let's read verses 24 to 27. Then they despised the, the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Friends, idolatry and unbelief are like two sides of the same coin. If you don't trust God in his word, you will trust another God of your own making. So it really shouldn't surprise us at all that, that Israel did not believe God's promise to give them the land of Canaan. Just like they fear, feared Pharaoh at the sea, now according to Roman, or excuse me, Romans, Numbers 14 at Kadesh Barnea, they feared the giants and the peoples of Canaan. They did not trust God to fight their battles and go before them to give them the land. The Lord then threatened to destroy Israel again, and yet again Moses interceded. But in this case, God swore by his own life that this generation that came out of Egypt would not see the promised land. This is the oath referred to in, in, in verse 26. So he raised his hand to them to cause them to fall in the wilderness. And then in verse 27, the, the psalmist uses what I think is the language of exile to describe what happened hundreds of years before to that generation. Did you see that in verse 27? It would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. I, I think the point there is that God's righteous judgment at Kadesh Barnea guaranteed his righteous judgment against Israel in the future. Their exile outside that very land that he eventually gave them. Verse 28, then they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. I think the dead being dead, lifeless idols. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Again, Israel craves in the desert. This is found in Numbers 25. Numbers 25 recounts the time when the men of Israel began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to then sacrifice to their gods, Baal of Peor. When an Israelite man took a Midianite woman into his tent in front of Moses in the sight of the people, Phinehas, the priest, the grandson of Aaron, responded quickly by taking a spear and driving it through both the man and the woman in the very act. Phineas was acting as a priest should, like the bodyguard of God's holiness. He was protecting the covenant among the children of Israel. 
his act of obedience, friends, stopped God's wrath. God's, God once again spared the people through the action of a mediator. Well, we see the final episode of, of the desert craving in verse 32. Verse 32. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. This, this story is in Numbers 20. Once again, the people craved for water they didn't have, but this time it was Moses who sinned. It was Moses who sinned in anger at the people's unbelief. God told him to speak to the rock. Moses struck the rock. And I think the implication there is he wanted some of God's glory for himself. The sin may seem minor to us, but Moses himself was kept from entering the promised land because of that sin. He was a faithful mediator, but he was an imperfect, sinful mediator, wasn't he? Sadly, Israel's idolatry and unbelief did not stop when they entered the land. Let's pick it up in verse 34. Verse 34, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Let me stop there for a moment. Actually, let's, let's keep going. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought in sub, sub, into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. After the 40-year wandering in the wilderness, friends, Israel entered the land. God told them that the Canaanites were under the ban of his justice for their wickedness. They were to kill all of them for their evil. Verse 34 notes that, that Israel failed to do what God commanded them to do. In verse 35, it details how they intermingled with the nations. And they picked up, they learned their evil. Friends, the, the types of things that, that, that Israel picked up from the Canaanites, I think proves that they deserve destruction. Things like sacrificing their children to the demonic idols. The Canaanites deserved the wrath of God. They deserved to be destroyed. These verses show us that idolatry is not harmless. It's deadly. In this case, it led to the sacrifice of children which defiled the land with innocent blood. God's people cheated on him, according to verse 39. They whored after false gods. So God judged them at the hand of enemy nations. Friends, friends surely, surely this is the point when God's patience had run out, right? Like, surely this is the moment. The sacrifice of children. Surely now he'll realize that this is a people not worth saving. Let's keep reading. Let's pick it up in verse 43. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant. And relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love, he caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Friends, if you read the book of Judges, you'll see this repeated pattern, right? The people's sin and apostasy, God's judgment, the people's repentance, and God's deliverance over and over and over again. You could have, I could have called this section, instead of the merciful God, the long-suffering God, the patient God. Because we know that his mercy is bound up with his patience. Look at verse 45. Time after time, God's people forgot him. But he remembered them. They forgot. God remembered. For their sake, he remembered his covenant with them. For their sake, God stayed true to his word. For their sake, he relented from his wrath. Friends, here's the thing about the mercy of God. Remember at the Red Sea, he acted for the sake of his name? Well, here, verse 45 says he acted for the sake of his people. 
Friends, God's glory and his mercy are not competitors. God's glory is most clearly shown through his mercy. Praise God. Through his fulfilling his covenant promise to his people. And our hearts ought to rise in thankfulness and praise to such a merciful and patient God. Number three, the saving God. Verse 47. Friends, I think it's at this point we can see the logic of the psalm. Let's read verse 47. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. So what what is the psalmist doing? He's saying, based on your faithfulness that I've just recounted all throughout the ages, O Lord, would you now save your people? Would you now deliver them again and gather them from among the nations? You saved us in the past. Please save us now. Gather us so we might worship you in the land once again. The psalmist banks his hope on God's good character and his track record of steadfast love. Friends, look over briefly at Psalm 107. Psalm 107. Look, look, just look briefly at the beginning of Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That sounds really familiar. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and the south. Friends, it's almost like the Psalter is intentionally arranged, believe it or not. Right? It's trying to show us something. Why should we give thanks to the Lord for he is good? Because God answered the prayer of Psalm 106. He saved his people. He brought them back. He gathered them in from the lands. You see what's happening? The salvation that God's people prayed for, he provided. God brought his exiled people home. After 70 years, they returned to the land. Now, let's think biblically and theologically about this for a moment, and then I'm going to apply the text, okay? I haven't done much application yet, but I'm going to apply it here in in a few moments. Here's the thing. The prophets who foretold about the return uh, of God's people from exile around the time that the psalmist wrote this psalm, they said that the end of exile would be so amazing, it would be like a new creation, right? The lion will lie down with the lamb, Isaiah said. Like stuff will bloom in the desert that has no business blooming in the desert, right? It's going to be like a return to Eden, The salvation of the Lord would be so great that the Messiah would lead his people in a new and greater exodus, a greater exodus even than the Red Sea. And this new exodus would include God giving his people a new heart and making a new covenant with them so that all the people would know and worship God. They would keep his law. But friends, did that happen when the exiles returned home from Babylon? Did the new creation happen? Did it look like a new exodus? Did God's people have a new heart? No. No, in fact, just like at the Red Sea, just like their conquest of Canaan, the change in location did not change their heart. Yes, there were some whose heart loved the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But on the whole, Israel's heart remained hardened in their sin. And soon they became slaves again, this time in their own land. You see, friends, God needed an obedient son, a covenant partner who would not forget him. Adam was his son, but he rebelled and he was exiled from the garden, from God's presence. Israel was God's son, whom he redeemed from Egypt, as was Israel's king. He was God's son, and they both were exiled from the land because of their sin. Friend, where in the world is the son who would not fail? Where's the king whose obedience would bring about the new covenant and the new exodus? Where's the one who would stand in the breach for his people like a new and better Moses and a new and better Phineas? Not one who would kill people to quench God's temporal wrath, but one who would willingly be killed as the perfect sacrifice to quench God's eternal wrath. Where's that mediator? Oh, friends, where's the covenant partner who will save his people from their sin and grant them the new heart they need to keep God's law? Oh, friends, you know the answer. You know the answer. It's our Lord Jesus. Ultimately, we praise our worthy and merciful God because he saved us by sending Jesus the King. 
In all the ways that Israel failed that we just read about, Jesus succeeded. In the desert, friends, in the desert, Jesus did not succumb to the temptation to crave after food or crave after false worship. Even despite being tempted by Satan himself, he remained faithful. He lived a sinless life, and yet he was crucified by the same type of hard-hearted Israelites we read about today. God's word tells us that Jesus' death upon the cross is what brings us life because he was the God-man. He, he was God so that he could forgive us and he was man so that he would represent us. Fully God and fully man. He met the demands of God's justice for sin so that he might pour out God's mercy on us. For all who turn from their sin and trust in Christ, God raised him up from the, on the third day to prove that he had accepted Christ's sacrifice. Even now the grave is in the hand of our king. If you're not a Christian this morning, I imagine that you might be a little overwhelmed. Frankly, I'm a little overwhelmed by this text. That was, that was a lot, right? Okay, that was a lot. That was 48 verses of a lot of different episodes in Israel's history. Maybe you're hearing these stories for the first time. Maybe you're being brought face to face with a God of unflinching holiness and holy love for the first time. Friend, you need to know that this God of love created you to worship Him and enjoy Him forever, to find your everlasting satisfaction in Him. I pray that you'll come to understand that even though your sinful rebellion has separated you from God, even though you deserve and I deserve the type of righteous, holy wrath that we saw in the wilderness from God to Israel, we deserve that eternally. God has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. Simply turn from your rebellion against God and trust in Jesus that he has borne the judgment that you deserve. Oh, friends, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the testimony, friends, of scores of people in this room. You're sitting among people just like you. Sinners, those who are once dominated by the power of sin, whom the Spirit has transformed to love Jesus and to find our all in Him. We're no better than you. It's by grace that we are what we are. We have simply turned to Christ and trusted in Him. Our time is nearly up, but let me suggest three ways for us believers to put this psalm in our hearts and mouths, and we'll be done. Three ways to apply the text. Okay, number one, friends, let Israel's folly warn you about the danger of idolatry. Let Israel's folly warn you about the danger of idolatry. Israel's folly is meant to warn us. It's meant to be an example for us. False gods do not give life. They only take it. Even we who are a new creation in Christ, we daily wrestle with indwelling sin, and we will until Jesus returns. Friends, here's what Satan does. Here's what Satan does. He baits us with the apparent attractiveness of idolatry on the front side of temptation, and then on the back side of it, after we succumb to it, he crushes us with the repulsiveness of our shame and guilt. Well, friends, Christ is better on the front, and he is better on the back. It's a deadly bait and switch. We need to remember the deceitfulness of sin. We need to warn each other and exhort one another in the fellowship of the church so that we stay faithful to the end. Friends, let's be honest enough with each other to seek help when we need it, right? To confess our sins to brothers and sisters in this body who will help us in the fight to persevere to the end. Number two, never forget God's covenant-keeping love. My friend, don't forget. Maybe you came to church today discouraged by battles lost in the fight against sin, even this week. Besetting sin seemed to gain the upper hand. My friend, look at Psalm 106, right? If, if, if God was so faithful to the ones through whom he made these promises, then surely he will be faithful to the ones for whom he has kept these promises. If you're united to Christ Jesus, God's beloved son, you share that beloved status. You are beloved as a precious son or daughter of the king. That is your identity. That's who you are. And friends, God can no more reject you than he can reject the son who died for you. Remember God's covenant-keeping love. 
At our, at our application lunch on Friday, as we sought ways to apply this text, one brother commented, it just seems like the most mature people in the faith are those who cling constantly to the gospel. Amen. Absolutely. Those who just can't get over grace. Those who are constantly applying the benefits of God's saving work to their life. You want to know how Christians sing Psalm 106? Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. We sing it through Christ Jesus. His steadfast love endures forever through Christ by His Spirit. Number three, set your hope fully on the end of your exile. You say, so what? Set your hope fully on the end of your exile. My exile? I thought you said Jesus delivered us from exile. Well, the surprising thing is in the fulfillment of God's plan is that Jesus fulfilled God's promises in an already but not yet way, right? As we read earlier, we're the ones on whom the end of the ages has come. Claire read that in 1 Corinthians 10. We are the new creation in Christ. We've been forgiven. So how can this new creation who have been forgiven, how can we still wrestle with sin and idolatry like we do? How can we still live plagued by sin in this broken world? Well, friends, there are aspects of our salvation that we have not yet received in full. That's why. In fact, Peter, in his first letter, calls Christians elect exiles. We're living scattered among the lands in a place that is not our final home. We are not unredeemed exiles like Israel and Babylon. We're the chosen exiles scattered throughout the lands waiting for King Jesus to return and bring us home and usher in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter exhorts us to set our hope fully on that day. That's what he says. Set your hope fully on the revelation of Jesus Christ and live holy lives in light of it. John writes in 1 John that the instant that Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And the one who has this hope purifies himself because he is pure. Friends, God's glory will once again be our glory in full. This is how we echo Psalm 106. We pray like the psalmist in verse 47. Save, O Lord, our God. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That's how we echo Psalm 106. Friends, let's close with the responsive uh, doxology in verse 48. This doxology that we see in all these last psalms closing the, uh, the books of the Psalter. I'm going to read the first part, and then I want you to respond corporately with and let all the people say, okay? Here we go. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. We're going to try that again, okay? <laughs> Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. <laughs>